0: Good to have you here on Urantia Radio, the podcast. I'm Jim Watkins, and we have a lot of great conversation to be had this morning. Uh, we'll do a little bit of a wrap on current events and what's going on in the world and how you're doing with it, how I'm doing with it. Also, we're going to cover, I think, primarily uh, 10 great places to start reading the Urantia book. I know in previous podcasts, I've, I've given some uh, favorites, uh, The Light of Day, in fact, one of the Papers that I like the most is Paper One Fifty Five, and we touched on that in the last podcast. And I want to kind of continue that conversation more. Uh, And so I've always wanted to come up with a list of ten places in the Arantia book where, you know, when people say, "Well, you know, where, where do I start? What's a good place? What's a good entry point for me?" And again. You know, everybody is different. Everybody is looking for truth in a different way, uh, and so even in recommending these ten favorite spots, entry points of the Urantia Book, I still may get it wrong. Uh, for example, my first choice is the very first paper because uh, where they talk about the Father's name, because not only does it introduce the concept of a personal deity in a grand way. But it also introduces a reader uh, to the concept of this notion that all worlds of intelligent will creatures worship the same God. Now, it's, you know, that statement right there is so above and beyond every other religion on the planet today. Just think about what I said. Every planet that has intelligent will creature life eventually comes to discover deity and they all have different names for him. The reason that's a bold statement is because our society, our culture, where we are now in in time and in space, in our developmental history, where we are on the pages of history, nobody's talking uh, ipso facto about multiple worlds with intelligent life. Nobody is having that conversation. Nobody. For the simple reason we haven't discovered life. We have not discovered life. We've discovered possible lives, exoplanets that we talk about, we read about often uh, in science journals. We have widened our uh, understanding that life can exist in a lot of different extremes. For example, they just uh, discovered this unusual uh, life potential gas that's in the atmosphere of venus uh, that they hadn't discovered before that they know for a fact that can possibly inhabit life or it is intricate or uh, integral to life appearing and then of course they keep finding these water holes on mars and they don't know whether mars at once had life or if it's just now starting to have life or maybe a combination of both maybe there was life then it became extinct and now it's maybe about ready to have more life, depending on this moisture that they keep finding. And of course, the Urantia book clearly states that both Venus and Mars, in some cases, though not as extreme, would be on some level capable of supporting life. That was stated in 1934 in the Urantia book, where it talks about our local solar system. And it talks about the varying types of planets. So the Urantia book is having this ipso facto and I may be using the term wrong, but they're talking about it as if it's already a fact. It's already established fact that there is life on other planets, that that is the whole point. You know, uh, just the other day when I was watching something on, I think it was the History Channel, one of those ancient alien shows, and they almost get it right, kind of. They almost always get it right, kind of, don't they? Have you ever noticed they they kind of get it right when they talk about the pyramids in this ancient civilization, but they don't quite nail it. And they talk about the hieroglyphs and how advanced the Egyptians were, and they don't understand well, where did this advanced race get all their ideas from? And now they're thinking, well, maybe it came from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and again, they almost get it right. And I, I laugh. I laugh because I go, God, you know, if you just read the Arantia book. Uh, just the other day, I was reading about Denosovans, Denisovans and Neanderthal. Now, uh, archaeologists are saying, well, wait a minute, maybe you know, they're, they're moving them around. Maybe the Denisovans came first and the Neanderthals, but who was this other race that sort of showed up around 50,000 years? We're not quite sure who they are. And I say, read the Arantia book. I mean, ipso facto, the revelators already know the truth. And that's why they're giving it to us, because they know that we're at that point now where, hopefully, intellectually, we're able to grasp a bigger picture. And my point about uh, what I was watching on television the other day, they're talking about parallel universe. And, you know, I've heard that term before. Have you heard that term before? Parallel universe? It's this notion that there's another universe moving alongside of ours perhaps in another dimension that we don't see and they can see us but we can't see them and that this uh, that, that it's moving along in space as we're moving along in space that's that's what people think of when they think of the parallel universe it's it's like but that where they get it wrong is that, that they think that those parallel universes, aren't connected, that they're independent of one another. Well, in the Arantia book concept of the reality of heaven, they explain that there's the material, the spiritual, and then there's an in-between phase that they call morontial, which makes up a bulk of where life is occurring. So we're occurring on the physical planetary stage. We don't know anything else. We're limited by our sphere of what we can see and what we can detect with our instruments, correct? So we know this. The revelators are stipulating to us that behind the scenes, just beyond human vision, is where you start to see these lower forms of angelic personalities, these spirit forms that are not highly advanced, like the supernathem or the sacanathem, these higher advanced angels or spirit personalities have been in existence far longer. They have far more experience in uh, in life experience. So everybody starts at, at, at the lowest possible level. Human beings are at the low end of the food chain in, in terms of spiritual living. So when, when this, the History Channel talks about the parallel universe, they're correctly identifying the Marantia phase of life, which is, is a parallel universe that we don't see. And that's when when Christ says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And we take that quote, which is actually referred to in the Arantia book, and they say what that means is that there are mansion worlds. And those mansion worlds we are told we will go to immediately following this first temporal physical existence. And that we will get there by faith. That's what the Arantia book is saying. That this life matters. Our memories matter. Our conduct matters. Our ability to integrate wisdom and knowledge matters. Because these are all part of the natural living experience that God wants us to have. Okay? And so... Just take a breath and let you kind of think about that. So this parallel universe is in fact the real playground. That's where reality really is happening. That's where the decisions are being made on, on cosmic levels. Where you have agencies that are working, that have the ability to mobilize entire regions of space and create nebula. Which then create suns, which then create planets that create evolutionary life. And you think that was accidental? See, ipso facto, it's not. You know, um, there is a lot we can talk about. But when you talk about the Urantia book, understand that most people are not ever going to get to where you want them to be with the book. Unless they're seriously searching for the truth. Uh, There's a quote that I want to read from paper 155. And it just jumped out at me. And we're going to get to that one paragraph where I told you about what Christ says about heathens and how their message is clear and concise and how we can learn from that. Those of us who are trying to uplift our fellow human beings by giving them thoughts and ideas that will elevate their thinking. Because that's what we do. That's what your Ange book readers do or any Anybody of faith or of deep conviction, spiritual conviction, you're trying to share the truth with other people. You want to improve the quality of their life, and it starts with the quality of their thinking, so that they can make better decisions, right? Uh, but in this one particular page, uh, the uh, the the revelators are talking about how it was a it was a real testing week for the apostles. Uh, they weren't getting the reception that they wanted. People were turning away. You know, it was it was anybody who's been in sales or in, in, in marketing understands it. You know, people are really hard to flip, uh, you know. I mean, you've got to really work at anything that's new. And so they kind of took the week off. They were uh, just kind of regrouping. And this particular quote from paper 155.3.2, I'm going to read it, and I want to preface it by saying that the... Uh, And actually, it's 155, section 3, paragraph 3. And it talks about, the. I think, it it, uh, exemplifies what we're going through now in our current world. Because people are not open to this idea of talking about God. Um, In the main, it's a personal thing. Uh, Most of the average people, you know, that's why you don't hear it on TV. It makes people uncomfortable. Uh, Hold on. God damn it. Uh, because this paragraph perfectly illustrates the challenges that we have in, in this world today where secularism, secularism rules the day. So, the apostles, it, re- it reads The apostles learned that the Jews were spiritually stagnant and dying because they had crystallized truth into a creed. That when truth becomes formulated as a boundary line of self righteous exclusiveness, Instead of serving as a signpost of spiritual guidance and progress, such teachings lose their creative and life-giving power and ultimately become merely preservative and fossilizing. That's a very powerful statement because it really indicts so many religions that become fossilized and crystallized. That line, uh, the Jews were spiritually stagnant at this time around the turn of the century. Their Mosaic laws had become so crystallized and so fixed. Uh, And they say that when truth becomes formulated as a boundary line of self-righteous exclusiveness instead of serving as signposts of spiritual guidance and progress. So you see the difference. So the Urantia book is a signpost of spiritual guidance and progress. The Bible is crystallized truth. That has become formulated as a boundary line of self righteous exclusiveness. And how many times have you heard people say, you know, you're not really a true Christian unless you accept the Bible as the Word of God? And that's been a bone of contention for a lot of people. You see, when we get to the point where being part of the Kingdom of God becomes a, an exclusive club based on, you know, certain tenets that you believe. Then it's no longer a religion. It's a it's a party. It's a group. It's a club. It's a cult. You can call it whatever you want to, but it's not a true religion. True religion is is not dead on on a piece of paper. It's a growing uh, experience. You can be a religious person and not you know teach religion. In fact, you know Jesus says this in this very paper, in paper one fifty five in the second discourse of religion, and. He talks about the fact that even in your secular life, you can still, to a person who has God in their life, um, everything is spiritual. And when you look at life from that perspective, then all truth is available to you. And that's the inspiring message of the Arantia book. So when I come up with 10 points of entry, I'm trying to find 10 ways to get you to go, wow. This is what truth looks like. This is what the road to exploring new revelation looks like. So, in paper one fifty-five, there's two points I want to make. Uh, number one is again about the heathen and their message. And another line that I caught that I hadn't realized before. I want to see if I can find it here. When uh, he talks about how the Son of Man is is, is merciful, and that the heathen will be received. Uh, in the hereafter. The Son of Man will not turn them away. And, you know, um, a lot of people talk about what is it that substantiates this belief that you can go from being a human when you're dead to, you know, an angel. And I, I say, well, you know, according to the Revelation and according to all the great teachers of truth, it's about faith. Jesus said in order to be born again, you have to be born of the spirit. And what's that concept really means is that you have to become conscious of your consciousness of deity, of something greater beyond yourself that is not material, but is a spiritual concept. And once your mind crosses that barrier from being wholly material to perceiving of a nugget, a morsel, of, of spiritual insight well you've made it you've been born again now to some people this is a you know a conversion experience like the day of jubilee right other people like me it's it's an organic process and it's always been ongoing i don't think there's ever been a time when i didn't have some form of belief in god or jesus or some supernatural being so let me read to you what it says, Jesus's own words, paper 155. And again, this is one of my great entry points for the Urantia Papers. If you want to give it to someone who you think would benefit from the revelation. So Jesus says, you have come out from those among your fellows who choose to remain satisfied with a religion of mind, who crave security and prefer conformity. You have elected to exchange your feelings of authoritative certainty for the assurances of the spirit of adventurous and progressive faith. You have dared to protest against the grueling bondage of institutional religion and to reject the authority of the traditions of record which are now regarded as the Word of God. Our fathers did indeed speak through Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Amos, and Hosea, but he did not cease to minister words of truth to the world. When these prophets of old made an end of their utterances, my father is no respecter of races or generations, and that the word of truth is vouchsafed one age and withheld from another. Commit not the folly of calling that divine which is wholly human, and fail not to discern the words of truth which come out, not through the traditional oracles of supposed inspiration. So that's an indictment against the Christian faith, in my opinion. You know, that's a powerful statement that Jesus says, you know, yeah, our father, he did speak through those, those prophets of old, but he didn't stop speaking. You have to go out and find the new truth. It's there. I've called you, he says, to be born again, to be born of the spirit. I've called you out of the darkness of authority and the lethargy of tradition into the transcendent light of the realization of the possibility of making for yourselves the greatest discovery possible. For the human soul to make. The supernal experience. Of finding God for yourself. In yourself. And of yourself. And doing it all. This as a fact in your own personal experience. And that's what he's declaring. is You can do it. It's within you. The kingdom of God. <clears throat> is with within you. And then. Um, again going back to his. Why do we not lay siege Uh, when he's talking to his apostles? You know, you see the heathen, they're raging. You see the activists, they're out in the street. You know, they're carrying their signs. They're, you know, pushing their cause. They're raising awareness. But how many of us raise awareness of the importance of spiritual liberty? I think that's, you know, I want to kind of tie that in because I've been having some great conversations lately uh, with some fellows about The moral imperative. People are generally concerned right now in this country that we're losing our liberties and we're going to be continuing to lose liberties as the government and the governments of the world and the corporations of the world get stronger and more powerful. Uh, And pretty soon, yeah, we're going to become like batteries. I mean, you know, uh, know, we were talking about the value of a human being these days is quantified now by data. It's your data that, that corporations want. It's your data... That is used as a way of getting you to consume things, uh, and what a terrible way to look at humanity, right? As simple data points. Um. Anyway, so you know, we were talking about the fact that liberty is generally under assault. It's a very subtle assault. It's not like somebody runs into the room and says, "I'm going to take away your right to go to church this week." No, it's all done under the auspices of, you know, this idea. That the government can save you, uh, the government is going to save you, and I am not going to get into a political discussion. But the point is, is that we willingly give up our liberties for safety. We do it in our social life, and we also do it in our religion. We would rather li- believe in the easier things to believe in. You know, it's it's easier to go and have fellowship. With Christians uh, at a church, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful experience, and you're you're praising the Lord, and you know that He's there. I know that He's there. But you you know, but is there is there another level where you can go within yourself, where you can have that same fellowship with with God? And are you having that? If, if church does that for you, wonderful. Um, and even Jesus says in paper one fifty five. But watch, lest any of you look with disdain upon the children of Abraham because they have fallen on these evil days of traditional barrenness. Our forefathers gave themselves up to the persistent and passionate search for God and they found him as no other race of men have ever known since the days of Adam. This he's talking about. Don't look too badly upon those who hold tightly the grip of institutional religion. Those are my words. Because the people that came before them really were the torchbearers. They were the they were paving the way for us so that we would have those truths. I was talking to a friend last night about how important the monks were in carrying the Judeo-Christian teachings as they were written uh, through the Dark Ages where they sat in slumber only to be rediscovered later. And then the Bible, of course, when it was one of the first books printed, I think it was the first book printed, Uh, ended up being the very thing that not just a couple of generations, but for two to three hundred years, many human beings learned to read from the Bible. So you think about, it's 400 AD, Europe has crashed, the Roman Empire is in pieces, there's battles, internist and warfare going on everywhere. Truth is lost, paganism is rampant there's all these weird ideologies the christian cult is is forming but now it's been taken over by you know the 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 uh, the church and the rulers right and so the the teachings of christ were sort of lying dormant during that period being preserved by the monks in all these isolated places castles uh, retreats translating from one language into another the gospels translating the words of the Uh, of the Old Testament preserving the truths and they were able to hold on to these truths long enough so that when the new day came in the future that there would be people who would be, you know, receptive to these teachings. So you kind of know where I'm going with this because, you know, we have a, a, a responsibility as we grow this revelation and we're doing, I think, a pretty spectacular job if you ask me. But we are at a point now where we uh, have certainly put it out there. This podcast is my feeble attempt to make a difference. But my God, look what the Urantia Foundation is doing and the the association and all the international fellowship groups and the schools and the people out in Boulder. And just unbelievable great works being done despite the fact that society is crashing down, right? Uh, Despite the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic. In fact, I would argue and I want to talk about this in a moment, but we may be going through that period of tribulation that was prophesied in revelation. I, I, I'm not saying we are, but it's food for thought anyway. Uh, if you go back a few podcasts when we talk about the sign of times, think about how strange this is. So on the year of on the date that Jesus was born, which was August 21st, seven BC. On that very same day in twenty seventeen there is a solar eclipse that crosses the Knobs bald cross I Knobs Cross or yeah. And it's on the edge of the Shahani National Forest in just outside of Carbondale in Illinois. So there's another eclipse that's coming uh, exact. Well, not exactly seven years later, but seven years later, in the seventh year. And it's going to be a solar eclipse, which is also going to cross that cross in Carbondale, but from the opposite position. So now you've got a crisscross that creates a cross over a cross. And that next solar eclipse is going to occur on the day that Jesus died. And he was in transit before resurrecting. So here's your first solar eclipse, which occurs on his birthday. And then the second uh, eclipse, which occurs seven years later, we all know seven is a special spiritual number. And it comes from a different angle, and they both crisscross at an intersection, which happens to be Knob's Cross, which is 1111 feet, by the way, for those who are paying attention. 11 and 11 midwayers. <clears throat> um, and then there's a third uh, uh, eclipse, which I haven't told you about, that's occurring on December 21st of this year in South America, which may or may not have relevance, except for the fact that it occurs at exactly the midpoint between these two other eclipses. So, if my God, you're having a field day if you're into numerology. Am I trying to make a point of something? I don't know but there's a lot of coincidences there and it's fascinating. So, you know, with all that's going on with the elections and and just, you know, this pandemic and, you know, how are we going to recover? Then on top of that, we now have a president who could die. Who knows? That'll create its own set of situations. Then you've got China, the secular totalitarian government trying to take over the fricking world and putting millions of people in concentration camps and torture and then you got the progressives in this country that are trying to secularize and have secularized education. So, you know, God and religion is almost a foreign language. I think I did a podcast called The G Word. You know, so there is no, you know, I don't, you know, like in this one period where, you know, like the apostles, the time right now, nobody's nobody's looking for answers from God. At least in the mainstream. That's my perception so it, it is it is incumbent upon us to try to elevate the conversation to fight for spiritual liberty you know there's a big fight to preserve just liberty in the greatest country on the planet and and I would say let's go a step further us your anti book readers let's let's try to affirm and assert spiritual liberty let's lay siege to the conversation by by, not so much trying to convert other people to what we believe but by introducing the concepts by asking questions of them you know um, and, and getting them engaged and in, in, in I'm going to assume with all of this mayhem that's going on in the world that people are starving for the truth they're starving for assurance uh, they want to know that there's more than just this And we have the answer. So if you give the book to someone uh, and you think that they're ready and you want to kind of steer them in the right direction, I came up with 10 uh, points of entry and I want to share those with you. You may agree, you may not. Um, I think I can post this on my website. I'll make a point of it. I'll put it on one of the posts, 10 entry points to the orantia Papers then if you want to go on net, you can refer to them or check them out yourself. And I would do this with my kids, with my family, with strangers. I've given the book to people and I don't tell them where to read and that's my mistake. I've actually had a lot of family and others, friends, give the book back and say, I don't even know, I started reading in the beginning and I didn't know what it was talking about. I'm not ready for this. You know, So they think the whole book is like the... the the forward, Ugh. Frustrating, right? Uh, but anyway, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're going to school folks, right? So here are my 10 points of entry. Uh, number one is paper one, section one, the father's name, which we discussed. Uh, that might be overly religious for people. So that usually is a good point. If somebody is a Christian or a Catholic and maybe they've just been come, become disenfranchised. Number two is paper 62, Section 6 and 7 on the planetary mortal epics. This is good for people who love history and can comprehend some level of evolutionary progression as being the end game of the human species. Third great place to start reading, uh, that's very fascinating if you want to introduce someone to the Orancha book. Paper 63, The Story of Andon and Fanta, The First Human Family. I like this paper. There's a ring of truth to it. Uh, even if you've never read another paper, you will fell You will feel as if you had a glimpse into what it was like for the very first two human beings. Now I know a lot of people that say, well, wait a minute, the first human beings were Adam and Eve. Well, we'll get to that. Historically, when they talk about when we made that jump, it had to do, and this is what anthropology doesn't seem to remember, but the demarcation between intelligent will creatures had to do with their ability to worship and have wisdom. That's what gave the first human family the title, the first human family. It wasn't that they had great thumbs. It wasn't that they stood upright for the first time, uh, because all of their cousins had already been doing those things. Some of the mid mammals or the prehumans, early, you know, homo erectus, you know, they, uh, They could grasp things. They could make tools, and there's tools, you know, littered all over Africa. You know, tool making was a long, far earlier than the ability to worship and the ability to think. We've got to plan something here. We have to have insight. We have to have wisdom. And that was the demarcation. And that's another revelation that the Arantia book makes when it talks about when we made that jump from being stupid, ape like to human like. And you get that by reading this paper, 63. And if you want to delve into where I started, Paper 74, Adam and Eve. Most people are familiar with Adam and Eve, so the story serves as a good entry point. It also provides for great discussion. And like I said, it was the first first paper I read that convinced me to buy the book. Paper eighty four, marriage and family life, that's a good place to start reading because you really get a rich appreciation of how hard things were back then when you hear all the stuff that's going on today um, about rights and all this. And you go back to the marriage and how it evolved and its contribution. It's pretty sobering. And it provides great insight into early human behavior. So paper 84 is a great place to start reading the Arantia book. Paper 111 is about the adjuster and the soul. A lot of people are very interested in the soul and how the spirit works. What's the difference between the two? You really learn a lot about yourself in these papers. Paper 111. And if you've ever given thought to the real meaning of life and your purpose, it will have you thinking for quite some time afterward, which makes it all the more intriguing. Paper, uh, I think it's 112, Personality Survival. Or 114? Need I say more? Who doesn't want to read about how our personalities survive and what personality is? Uh, paper 122, The Story of the Star of Bethlehem, is a great entry point. And to this date, science has still not made that connection as it's displayed and as it's explained in the Arantia Papers. But it's actually astronomically correct Uh, paper 139 on the 12 apostles several people including uh, Meredith Sprunger uh, William Sadler Sr they all remarked about how reading the 12 apostles really convinced them of the authenticity of the Arantia book at least of part four so if you are introducing the book to someone who maybe has a little bit of uh Education along Christian lines—they're really going to appreciate the paper one thirty-nine, which talks about the twelve apostles. It's a great, great read. And for me, the uh, paper that's most chilling and probably most sobering, uh, and one that I bring up often—it's uh, also a good entry point because it's actually talking about the current day. It also explains not only the impact that Christ's teachings had on Western civilization and religion itself, but it also talks about moving forward, what happens if we become less God-oriented or less spiritual, and we become more secular, and the dangers inherent in those two differences. Uh, and to me, the most chilling and sober message contained, Paper 195, Sections 5 and 6, they're also very prophetic Uh, which it states that if we choose secularism as our primary ideology on this planet, uh, we may be going through a a, a very extensive dark period. Some say that we are already. Um, If we choose to acknowledge that there are supreme spiritual ideals, which will elevate our ethics and foster cosmic understanding of relationships, then we can raise the standard and the quality of living and thinking For every moral born on this earth, uh, you know, every person. We can do that. You know, I'll say it, I've said it other places, if I've repeated it oftentimes, but Jordan Peterson said it best. You don't realize how important your life is. In your life, you will meet a thousand people, and every person you meet will also meet a thousand people. So you are one person away from influencing a million people in your life. So you don't know the impact that you're going to have in your everyday life. But it's tremendous. And when I say cosmic relationships, people say, "Whoa, well, what does that mean, cosmic relationship? You mean having a relationship with a ghost? Well, what's cosmic? What I'm referring to is the revelatory truth being claimed by the authors of the Urantia Papers that we are the human race, are actually part of a highly intelligent and actively participatory group of living personalities who are working towards the progress of our world just as they're working on other on the behalf of other worlds and they've been doing this since the very beginning of time we just don't know it yet further we don't know this because of our limited material perception under normal circumstances We would long be familiar by now with the spiritual forces and agents surrounding us who care for us very much. They care about our spiritual development. They care about our intellectual well-being. And they've been fostering our development for, well, since we got here. And there's nothing fantastic about that. That's the cosmic relationship. You know, imagine if if you were a, a society on planet Earth And you were living on an island that was no bigger than, say, the Hawaiian island chains. And for all of your existence, you thought that you were the only one, or that your group of islands was the the only place where there are human relationships. And then one day, these boats start showing up. And people that look a little differently show up. And they talk differently. Well, guess what? Now you've gone from being isolated to having an entire planet To have a relationship with. The day will come when we will have relationships with entire universe personalities. Some who have revealed themselves to us. We're familiar with names like Gabriel, Uriel, Jesus. You know, these aren't space aliens. These aren't like weird creatures that, you know, take the human form temporarily. And You know, these are real spiritual beings. And they've, they've offered us assistance and guidance. But because of our history, our checkered history, a lot of that guidance got lost. And so the Urantia book is an attempt to make up for that deficit so that it can elevate our thinking and elevate our spiritual insight and elevate our understanding of deity and our relationship to deity. And that's the purpose of the Urantia papers. For those who want to, travel down that path. So there you have it, ten areas where I think just a quick recap, you know, Paper one, the Father's Name, Paper two on the Planetary Mortal Epics, learn about the different phases of humanity. The first human family, Paper 63 is great read. Adam and Eve, Paper 74, Paper 84, Marriage and Family Life, Paper one eleven, All About the Soul personality survival. Or if you just have 20 minutes, just read about the Star of Bethlehem, paper 122. If you want to get into some good reading about human relationships, read about the Twelve Apostles, paper paper 139. And then paper 195, towards the end of the book, two two sections, paper 5 and 6, and learn what spiritual liberty and the value of spiritual liberty. And so I'm going to close off with this final quote from Jesus from paper 155 where he says you are my my apostles and to you religion shall not become a theological shelter to which you may flee in fear of facing the rugged realities of spiritual progress and idealistic adventure but rather shall your religion become the fact of real experience which testifies that God has found you idealized ennobled and spiritualized you and that you have enlisted in the eternal adventure of finding the God who has thus found you and sonship to you. And then he said to Andrew, pointing west towards Phoenicia, let us be on our way. Until next time, thanks for joining me on this edition of the Urantia Radio Podcast. Join us online anytime at urantiaradio.net. Until next time.